0: Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On The Wing Podcast. It is the heart of winter as uh, we're recording this episode. And what better time than the heart of winter? It's, It's literally blizzarding out in Minnesota as I record right now. We've got four inches of fresh snow on the ground and a prediction of six more inches to come. We'll see. Uh, but what better time than the heart of winter than to talk about spring planting season. And uh, as as I mentioned in the last podcast with, with Ron Weathers, our, our brand new chief conservation offices, officer, we have in the neighborhood of 270 biologists out of our 380 employee team. We have biologists that work with landowners on habitat projects and biologists that work with state agencies and on public lands access projects and land acquisitions. we got biologists working on policy in Washington, D.C. Today, we're going to talk with our seed biologists, the seed biologists for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. While blizzards storming out, behind my window we're going to talk habitat with our seed biologist Aaron Keo. Aaron welcome to uh, on the wing podcast today.
1: Hey Bob thanks a lot for inviting me on uh, super excited to talk habitat as you said in the midst of a blizzard in the midwest.
0: <laughs> yeah well you're you're familiar with midwest blizzards although you moved a little bit further south tell tell our audience who You've been, you've been with the organization a long time now. It's got to be uh, close to 20 years,
1: right? Uh, yeah, 20 years, uh, actually, probably next month. So uh, I've been oh. here a while. But Congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. Um, but, yeah, like you said, I'm not a stranger to the blizzard weather. I was born in southwest Minnesota. Uh, in farm country, uh, we did find a couple of pheasants out there, but uh, – uh, I really should credit my dad right now, if I can, just for introducing me to the outdoors. Um, great times. Down there, it was more deer hunting and duck hunting than pheasants, um, but uh, loved it. It uh, became a passion of mine. In fact, uh, I remember the day when I would actually show up to school in the parking lot and be taking waiters off before the... Bellray. <laughs> yeah. What well, what town did you grow up in? It's uh trimont that. it was called it's about 700 people go Mavericks uh Martin <laughs> <last> year, <700. laughs>
0: And uh I I introduced you as our seed biologist. Uh tell you know after you took your waiters off and went into school. <laughs> and then uh proceeded out of college. Tell folks where you went to school and what you, what degrees you have.
1: So I've got a, kind of a unique uh, history. I actually started off in Chicago, Illinois, uh, right across from Comiskey Park, majoring in electrical engineering, if you can believe that, um, on an Air Force scholarship. And uh, I really couldn't be further from my roots in downtown Chicago, honestly. So uh, that didn't work out for me too well. So I actually transferred out to South Dakota State in Brookings, switched my major from electrical engineering to wildlife and fisheries uh, sciences, which is where I got my degree. I worked there uh, on a couple of different research projects as well. Uh, One, doing some survival studies with some graduate students. But then I even did my own small research study on winter survival in, uh, it would have been like 90 798 terrible blizzard weather out there was published a couple times there. So it was, it was, it was really cool. That's where I really developed the passion for hunting upland birds. Uh, mm. me and my best friend, we would go out after every fresh snow, uh, find some cattail tail and without dogs, we would just track down the pheasants and flush them. Nothing like yeah. that. So.
0: so, so these research projects you're talking about were focused on pheasants.
1: They were. They absolutely were. Yeah. So we did uh, some trap and capture uh, techniques on birds, which was kind of fun. You'd flush them and chase them and each time get a little closer before you could actually get them in a net. But uh, uh, interesting <laughs> times. So that was my undergraduate
0: experience. Um, <laughs> so you got to tell us a little bit more about that, because, I'm, you know, as you say that, I'm thinking about hunting birds. And flush them and get a little closer. Uh, that's pretty hard to do. You, you gotta there's this is happening at night, isn't it? Uh no,
1: middle of the day, but we is did it? we did have technology to aid us. They were radio collared birds. So okay. we would uh they were already caught beforehand and then we get a little closer with the radio and each time eventually we'd get down to a clump of cattails or grass and be like, okay, it's in here and dig around <laughs> for it and eventually find the bird.
0: I've seen the reason I thought it was at night is I've seen the University of Nebraska Lincoln some research videos where they're they're driving around like a, there's a driver and then there's people on the back of pickup trucks and with big flashlights and giant flashlights and they're chasing them in the middle of the night yeah. and it looks like if we could get somebody from the University of Nebraska who's listening to donate one of those experiences to a live auction sometime we could raise tens of thousands of dollars because i know i would donate to be in the back of one of those pickup trucks (laughs) chasing down peasants in the middle of the night it'd be pretty fun yeah uh
1: in our younger days especially i imagine that would be just a blast Uh, now now i don't want to do as much chasing i would be driving the truck or shining a flashlight i think
0: (laughs) so so you have a degree in wildlife biology from sdsu right correct
1: uh and then uh after that actually my senior year i was um talking to my major professor and uh i'm I'm excited to get out there and do wildlife work and he's like so where are you going to go do your graduate degree and i'm like "Mm, didn't really think of that yet so i pulled Mm -hmm. everything together put together a couple applications looked at a couple places and uh somehow got everything Worked out and uh, got accepted to a graduate program at Iowa State. So moved down there. I actually worked with Bill Clark, who's been on the show before, um, yeah. predator guy, and and that's honestly what I did my master's work on is predators in uh, in a north central Iowa landscape.
0: That's that's right. I knew that that was kind of your focus of pre- predators specific to pheasants, right?
1: Uh. It, uh Yes and no. So I was really looking at how predators moved across the landscape, how they entered and exited blocks of habitat. So as a hunter, you can probably imagine we like bottlenecks, right? And because we know Mm -hmm. deer and wildlife use them, predators are no different. They're moving in and out on the corners. So to dumb down my thesis as much as possible, it's like if we had round sections of habitat, we would just have dizzy predators going around and around and never into the habitat without those corners. So- um, it, it was a lot of fun to do, uh, worked with some guys, and, and honestly, there were, I think it was a, a doctorate student who was working on um, nesting ducks and their survival. So anytime one of those duck nests was depredated, I actually got in, did an assessment of those nests, and identified which predator was likely to, to do that depredation.
0: So you get your your master's from Iowa State, mm-hmm. and that, and then you then you went to work for pheasants forever uh
1: yes uh while i was finishing up my master's degree there i was actually working uh with the iowa department of natural resources on a quail study um looking at their habitat changes over time Uh, and while i was finishing up that and my thesis that's when i started working for pheasants forever i uh worked under the tutelage i guess of jim woolley and matt o'connor they really taught me how to uh, do the fundraising and work with those chapters which was definitely part of the early job with with pheasants forever for me Um, learned a lot from those guys and, and just continued from there
0: yeah uh so you were a regional rep in south southern minnesota for a number of years.
1: Yeah, eight years I was I was there working with those chapters, um, certainly helping them with fundraising um, and habitat projects, youth events. But I also did a lot of grant activity when I was in Minnesota. So mm-hmm. land acquisition was a big part of what I did. We were uh, worked as liaisons with the state agencies. So I sat on a bunch of technical committees and uh, that's really where I first started working with seed programs as well. So whether that was, mm-hmm. Uh, doing a landowner workshop and helping them build mixes for CRP programs that were happening or just, you know, putting together mixes for our own properties that we've purchased as Pheasants Forever before we turn them over to the state. And,
0: and today um, you live in Illinois. So how long have you been in Illinois now? So
1: in 2008, I took a promotion in in the organization, became the, the state coordinator for Illinois for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever here. Um, and spent about eight years doing that and then in 2016 that's when i really changed the the focus to what i'm doing on now is with a, with the national seed program
0: so that that's a great transition so then you know for a lot of folks well it's probably split on the number of folks that are aware that we have a national seed program and the number of folks that don't know that we have a national seed program so let's start with know why let's answer the question of why 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 is pheasants forever and quail forever in the seed sales business
1: so the simple answer is it's our mission right habitat is our mission Mm -hmm. and we want to make sure that we're helping uh, all those cooperators out there that are doing habitat projects with that part of the mission every good habitat project uh, started with good seed at some point and someone designed those mixes so um, it's not something new we've done as an organization. We've been doing seed um, in the market uh, since the 90s, when we shortly after we started, both in terms of food plot and native grasses. And we really started out with state by state programs, and it's just kind of grown and grown onto a national program where we can offer all those services um, to all of our members, but also to the general public and our partners
0: out there. So, yeah, I'll, I'll refer to this website quite often throughout this um, particular podcast. If folks want to see the depth and breadth of our our seed, go to pfhabitatstore.com. And you can get there from from the main website, just drop down to through the conservation page, but pfhabitatstore.com. And Aaron, there are, do you know the exact number of seed mixes? I, I dare say there's like Four hundred of them.
1: So um, it's a good question we have several standard mixes that we've designed to meet certain program standards and that's what the public will see and then we've got 10 times that in custom mixes that we've done for landowners that don't show up on our on our necessarily on our pages, um, but are still, you know, things we've worked on throughout the, the time here. Um, you know, one of the great things about working in this space, kind of in the retail market too, is we're able to ensure that those quality mixes are designed but also are affordable for those landowners. So, price is something we pay a, a lot of attention to. Um, and, you know, we're also able to influence. The seed suppliers and the growers based on kind of what we want in our mixes what species we want so they they react to that because we we do hold um quite a bit of projects out there on the landscape so they're trying to react to that and then even some other companies who are in that retail market they're copying those mixes that we've designed so from our perspective we feel like we've actually benefited not only those customers that are getting our mixes but those that are getting those same mixes from other
0: places and, you know in our marketing for our seed program if folks have watched it over social media for a number of years we, we say designed by biologists well the "designed by biologists" started with jim woolley matt o'connor and you how important is it that a biologist that has degrees in you know from stsu and iowa state and has studied Yes, bird number bird populations and predation and life cycle I mean if folks folks remember reading some of the life cycle of a pheasant I mean you wrote most of that right between you and Molly. <laughs> yeah I've,
1: I've definitely been a part of that process over the years
0: so you know so I guess it's a multi-part question how important is it that a biologist is pulling the strings on all these seed mixes? And then the other part is a personal question. Um, what's that like to have been studying biology your entire life and now like at the very fund- fundamental level, you're literally the seed person that's you know coming up with this that that's creating millions upon millions of acres of habitat. And, and I don't mean to overblow that with, like there's all sorts of landowners and farm biologists and program, but at the very most fundamental level, a biologist that studied uh, wide depth, breadth and depth of uh, pheasants and how the relation to habitat is creating all these mixes. That was a mouthful of a question. So tackle it however you'd like. (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah, that, that's a, that's a tough one to answer. So um, certainly the wildlife, well, I'll take a step back. So I I think there's kind of three things, you know, everyone's like, it's part art, it's part science and it's part experience. And and I don't know if it's Mm -hmm. equal parts of all three of those, but they're all important. So, um, there's certainly that science background, that wildlife sciences that really plays into what we're trying to accomplish in terms of these mixes, and and we'll get more into that as we go along. Um, there's part art because um, sometimes it's it's just like okay, let's do a splash of color here, a little bit of purple over mm-hmm. here, uh, and a lot of it. You know, I have to give credit to this organization and our great partnerships because there is a constant feedback loop. So we are um experimenters uh in the wildlife field we put stuff on the ground sometimes it works great we get pheasants coming out our ears and other times we find out that you know we can do things better and that's something i think we strive to do as an organization and certainly within the seed program we're always trying to do a little bit better the next time around so all these mixes are we're tweaking over time and and you can look at that um, from a program standpoint in crp i mean the first round of crp you know it was uh, introduced species, you know, brome and, and alfalfa, move to switchgrass, and then oh, let's let's add five grasses to these mixes, and and now we're at a point where we understand the importance of species richness and diversity. So um, it's a learning process for
0: us all, but I've I've been super excited to be part of that over the last twenty years. And i and I've been guilty. I said pheasants a number of times, but as you called out, you know, you, your very first kind of work experience out of school was related to quail too. And that's, that's a really important component of kind of the expanding growth of our seed program. And, and it's the creation of habitat for quail too, isn't it?
1: It is. And pollinators and deer and turkeys and, and the whole gamut, mm-hmm. right? Um, we've done a lot as um, humanity in terms of changing the landscape and, and wildlife keep getting pushed to these smaller marginal areas, and we know how important it is to, that those remaining areas are the highest quality habitat they can be, and not just focused on a single species, but, you know, what can that one acre that remains do for uh, pheasants, but also for pollinators and crop production and, and all that on top of each other, soil health and, and water quality, uh, we just keep getting better and better at that over time.
0: All right, so, so let's talk about buying seed. So folks are going to go to the pfhabitatstore.com and they know they want to have more pheasants and or quail. Um, Think about their own, their thought process from the customer's perspective. Uh, How would you coach a person to evaluate, you know, they land on the site now what 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 are the questions they should be asking themselves
1: so the very first question is um what do you want you know you need to understand your objectives both in terms of the species that you're looking to benefit so your target species but also have some idea what you want to see out there in the landscape and then are you looking to develop someplace that improves your hunting or are you trying to affect winter survival are you trying to affect reproduction so really understand your goals and objectives and then the other thing you need to know is you know what kind of assistance is available are you already enrolled and if you are you know that that puts you know sides on our box
0: so assistance and enrollment you're talking about conservation programs like CRP or state programs that might uh, you might be able to, quote, unquote, enroll in and then get some funding from an agency to help you with your expenses for not only purchasing the seed, but planting it,
1: correct? Correct. Yeah. Uh, And I would say the vast majority of the mixes we're designing are part of some program whether it's crp or equip or or other programs out there so there are often strings attached to what that can look like which also provide us some guidance on what those mixes should look like yeah. um, and that gives us the flexibility to work within them but for those folks then it's step two after you know what you want is you know what assistance is available so that's probably going into that local usda service center conservation district and asking Uh, and you can give them an idea of what you're looking for too so i've heard something about pollinator habitat can can i qualify for that or i want to put some grass on the ground for pheasants how do i do that and they'll have a, a lot of ideas on what programs might fit your project if if they're lucky, we have a farm built biologist or you know uh, on the quail side or the pheasant side that mm-hmm. can help and visit their property and tell them exactly which programs they qualify for, um, and and there are other partners that do great things too. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service partners program is fantastic. All state agencies have private lands biologists that work with landowners, so there are resources out there available. And I would say. Nine times out of ten, the best place to start is that local county office because they know of those other good partners as well. Um, but don't forget your local chapters, right? So our local chapters have both financial assistance and they have technical assistance in terms of they have equipment sometimes to rent or you know lease or they sit on the drill for you and plant those grassland acres. Um, so. You know, there are a lot of options out there available, and certainly, you know, anyone from the SEED team, you know, we deal with a lot of this stuff every day, and we can help walk people through that process.
0: So, all right, so step one, think about what your goals are. Step two, see what you qualify for. Step three, know work. if...
1: Well, I, I, I'd say work with someone you trust.
0: It's okay, We're, so... Work with a biologist you trust? Is that what you're talking about?
1: Uh, biologist, yep. Um, Pheasants Forever as an organization, obviously. Um, our heart's in the right place in terms of we want good habitat on the ground, the Fish and Wildlife Service. So know that whoever you're working with has the same objectives of improving wildlife habitat as you do.
0: Um, Which sort of goes to the, the next thing that I'm thinking about is, um, and you talked about it, uh, pheasants for every whether it's chapters or habitat specialists they have equipment in, in a lot of circumstances because um, w- when you're talking about plant and seed sometimes you need more than what than what's in your garage sometimes you don't so but that is part of the evaluation process too isn't it
1: absolutely so um, there are a lot of companies that'll sell you something um, and you know if you're willing to buy it great uh, you know, from our perspective, I think we're we're not just looking to provide seed for your project. We want to make sure your project is successful. It's an organization. We want habitat at the We airport. want habitat. Exactly. That's exactly what we're looking for. So find someone who does that, who's not going to just sell you the seed, send you an invoice and be done with you. You know, we'll, we'll walk you through the process. We've got resources available, certainly experience to show you, to tell you how to do things right. So you're most successful, because this isn't you know, as easy as throwing out lawn seed for your, your front yard, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's a lot of times when we're talking to the landowner about seed, we're providing that technical assistance and they're asking us questions. And, and based on those questions, we know that, oh, these guys aren't, you know, they don't have a seven and a half foot Truex drill in their backyard that they're going to, you know, drill this in. They're, they've got a hand crank broadcast seeder. So how do we guide them to make sure that they don't use all of their seed in the first 10 feet? <laughs>
0: So we, we make sure that they're they're they
1: have the highest degree of success
0: possible. And w- when it comes to chemicals, pesticides, herbicides, do you have do you need to know or do you, how to use that for planting native seed mixes, or is it going to come up naturally?
1: Um, um, so, from a herbicide standpoint, especially uh, if you have weeds. Um, now or there were weeds there before you're going to have more weeds Um, because those annuals that's that's their life history they want to get in there they're going to establish really quickly produce a lot of seed Um, long term they should not win with native species so Hmm. natives have root systems and structures that go feet and feet below the ground tens 10 feet plus Hmm. Uh, and these these quickly establishing weedy species you know they might have six inches of of root. Uh, so eventually those natives will, um, out-compete them if they're given the chance to do that. And because of those deep root structures, a lot of them will spend a lot of time the first couple of years putting that energy below ground. So you don't see what you might expect to see. You don't see a corn stock shooting up out of the ground. Um, but they do come and eventually they do win.
0: So and I, and I jumped over this, but, uh, so a critical component, uh, establishing your habitat is the site prep correct
1: uh yes improper site prep is the biggest reason for failures regardless regardless of what kind of uh, seeding you're talking whether it's for wildlife food plots or for native plantings
0: so so a a pheasants forever quail forever farm bill biologists or biologists is that part of their their coaching when you talked about getting expert advice they're going to help determine if you need to do a prescribed burn or a disking or plant plant it to soybeans for a couple of years before you plant that's the kind of coaching you're talking about right
1: it is yeah and that's why you want to work with someone you trust because they're going to be able to provide you those recommendations whether they see that or you know if it's me talking to someone on a phone that those are the questions i ask like what's there now you know Mm -hmm. what are we going to be struggling with okay here's what you need to do to you know, increase your chances for success. Um, and then it, if you're adding another step here, it's like follow those recommendations, right? Don't get all excited and be like, hey, you know, I know I was supposed to do the site prep. I didn't really have time. I'm going to take this $10,000 in seed I have. I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Uh, uh-huh. So make sure you're you're paying attention to what you should be doing. Um, because if you've got a large project, some of these uh, seed mixes can be, expensive if you're paying for it out of your
0: pocket for sure so and so a lot of folks okay so we talked about blizzard going on right now it's truly the best time to be thinking about what you want to plant in the spring because a lot of times there there can be a shortage of seed come planting season so you want to get it ahead of this stuff but but there is a bit of an expectation that i'm going to plant it in the spring and i'll be hunting in the fall Mm -hmm. And that's while that is remotely possible, that's really not the time frame to approach this. Correct. Uh, You know,
1: what you see in the fall is not what you expect to see three years into the project, for sure. So if you've done a good job balancing um, some of those early species, black eyed susan, they do great popping up that first year partridge pea from a flower standpoint Um, some of our cool season grasses are really quick to establish Um, but you know weather plays a huge factor in there and again a lot of that energy is going on below ground so you're going to have something and you might but it's going to have a lot of bare dirt in there and a lot of annual weeds Um, and then year two you're you're going to see a big jump you're going to start to see more color in there more native grasses they're going to get you know knee high and and taller and then most of the time it's year three that that project really takes a jump and it's not that you can't hunt in those areas because some of those first year plantings if you're a dove guy oh my gosh those doves love that bare dirt between those grasses mm-hmm. and it could be a fantastic hunt out there for that
0: but but realistically year three is when you start seeing an, the diversity expressed themselves in the stand and the wildlife responding to it.
1: Right? Yeah, exactly. And the other thing too, is some of these species have different life histories too. So we've got annual species in there that pop early. We've got perennials in there um, that may not even establish until year three or four. Mm-hmm. And you've got biennials that'll be there a couple years in different forms. So um, having a balance of that through your mixes is important um, and Sometimes we're putting species in, not only for that, but one of the things we like to do is put partridge pea in mixes because when it's three inches tall, it looks like a little fern. So when people say, I, I can't see what's going on, I don't think anything's showing up. And I'm, I am look at the mix, I'm like, oh, you have partridge pea in it. Are there any uh, things that look like small little ferns? He goes, oh, they're all over the place. <laughs> you know that, okay, the planting is fine. You just have to have a little bit of patience.
0: Uh, you mentioned um, cool season grasses. Explain cool versus warm and why one is important for, you know, what are cool seasons important for and where warm seasons important
1: for. So from a, 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 looking at it most simply, cool season grasses are going to be growing earlier in the cooler part of the, the summer or spring. And warm seasons really don't kick off until those temperatures start to climb. Uh, there are groups. There are cool season native grasses. There are warm season native grasses. There are forbs or wildflowers that grow early and end up blooming early, Are early bloomers. And there are those that do the other end of the spectrum and, and are late. Uh, and I guess early to me is, you know, May, June, uh, maybe a little bit earlier for those flowers. But then it can be, you know, October for some of those late blooming species. Mm. And what's nice, too, is you know, taking a picture of a project at any one point in time doesn't give you a real good understanding what's there, because if you're taking that in the early summer, you're going to see one group of species, and then if you take the same picture a couple months later, you're a lot of those species that were blooming early are senesced, they're dying back, um, and that makes room for some of those late blooming species to show up. So you want to make sure you are hitting that time frame throughout the season and have something growing the whole
0: time. Mm. So you, you've touched on that with, with pollinating mixes where you want the flowers to be blooming at different points in the growing season for for butterflies and for honeybees. It, and my assumption is same is true for grasses, right? So you want the cool season grasses for to establish early for nesting season, right? And then exactly, you, yeah. you want to carry in through the entire, right. entire of the year.
1: So the other nice thing about some of those cool season natives is they take up space early and they prevent some of that weed. So they're, uh, they they help with weed competition. They take up that space, they're green and they attract nesting birds, especially waterfowl like that green up. Um, pheasants obviously do too, but uh, yeah, it, it fulfills an important component of what you wanna see in a good mix.
0: So before I, I move us to a bit of a lightning round talking about particular species and planting particular mixes to try to influence those species. Is there anything we missed along the way that you think about that, like people constantly come to you with questions about, um, or, or something that, uh, anything we missed related to this conversation that you think is important? So, um,
1: I think managing expectations is important because if you have someone who really just expects that finished product in year one, they're not gonna be happy with it in year one. Um, And sometimes that leads to mowing it down, starting over, when really all you need to do is have a little bit of patience um, and those will eventually come out. Um, From from the other side of things, I'm just kinda looking to see if there's anything glossed over here. When we're doing the design, you know, from a wildlife perspective, we're looking at balance. We talk a little bit about grass and forbs, planting rates, but function is incredibly important. And I don't think I talked at all about that. So um, pheasants aren't looking for a particular species of grass. They are looking for a structure um, in early green up, late green up, Uh, native bunch grasses are incredibly important to
0: nesting, ground nesting birds, stiff forbs, uh, they're so that, native uh, native bunch grasses, I think uh, big blue stem. Is that, that is that what you're that's talking
1: about? Example, yeah. So um, takes up you know maybe a square foot, maybe it's two square foot of of area on the ground, and then there's bare dirt around it, and that's great for those chicks, whether it's pheasants or quail, so they can move around when foraging. So you also have forbs out there, wildflowers, and that structure you might have a single stem that comes up, and then it branches out, and those. Those really provide that aerial protection, um, certainly some diversity in there, but still at ground level, they can move around and find chicks or little bugs, which mm-hmm. individually package protein for those developing chicks, uh, which just dominates their diet early on. Um, what I, a lot of people don't necessarily think about is from a winter stand, winter cover standpoint, so switchgrass. They're like, hey, let's just plant solid stands of switchgrass, great winter cover. Um, If you include some stiff stem forbs in there, it actually increases the robust nature of those native grass stands and prevents some of that lodging that can happen with heavy snow. So those diversity, ironically, is not just good for brood rearing. It's not just good for nesting. It's also good
0: for winter cover. Hmm. You you said lodging that can happen in the winter. What, what, What do you mean by that? So
1: when the when the grass just tips over. So okay. it gets heavy snow and it just tips over. It doesn't necessarily spring back. Um, those stiff, I mean, if you think about walking through something that was all um, goldenrod. So that's a very stiff, stiff stem, mm-hmm. and that prevents that full lodge of that grass so it doesn't bend all the way over. It, it provides yes. some area under it to, to roost and so forth.
0: Right, right. Anything else that that we missed or frequent questions that come your way? So maybe this is a philosophical
1: thing, but um, we talked a little bit about costs and we're trying to keep costs low. And that is both because we respect the cooperator. They they have some skin in the game and we wanna make sure that it's affordable. Um, But we also talk about from a responsibility. uh, These programs are funded by an organization or a taxpayer, and we don't wanna use those dollars irresponsibly either. So, um, you know, from a perspective of a customer looking for seed shop around Um, seed prices, depending on where where you look can be very different. Uh, Mm -hmm. We try to keep ours low um, and affordable for a lot of different reasons, but make sure you're calling a couple different
0: people off that list. Yeah, that's good advice. Uh, All right. So we're transitioning to I'm asking something of an ignorant question on purpose. So you could, uh, you could explain um, what I mean by that. When, when I say, you know, I'm, I'm a buyer that wants to have more quail on mm-hmm. my property. Um, how are you going to direct me on the pfhabitatstore.com? What seed mix should I buy?
1: Um, buy the phenomenal quail seed mix. But we don't have that. But uh, so it, it really depends. And you know, this, and I know this, so it's, it's, it's all about what's necessary for that species, whether you're talking quail or pheasants or, or what have you. So um, what's missing in that landscape. And one of the first things I challenge a cooperator do is, you know, what's your neighbor have on his property is he have lots of great nesting cover and you're only missing winter cover or vice versa, you know, try to find out what's most important to that species um, to benefit that population. Uh, But you also have to realize that some guys are like, well, I want pheasants in the fall because I want to shoot pheasants. So you you need to make Mm -hmm. sure that you can do all things for all people.
0: Yeah. Because you really need to think about the entirety of a, Whatever species, whether it's quail, pheasants, big bucks, turkeys, you're approaching it from a life cycle perspective, correct? So you're thinking, okay, do does this person have nesting cover on their lands on their land? And if they don't, what's the neighbor have? Mm-hmm. And then the next thing is brood cover, slash pollinator habitat, kind of one and the same. Then yep. the next thing is winter cover. And then the next thing is food. So let's talk about all right. Assessing if a person has good quality nesting cover on their land and around them, brood cover, winter cover, food. How how do they evaluate all that, and then what should they plant in their own in their own, on their own property? So
1: um, the the first point I want to address is like good quality so generally most people say i planted habitat out there you know 20 years ago i used to have lots of pheasants i don't anymore i haven't changed anything well that's a problem right so um pheasants quail they like early successional types of habitat and what i normally ask then is okay so you've literally done nothing what does that look like now that's different well it used to have 10 species now it's just all switchgrass or all big loose down. um or that fence line i said did it used to have shrubs in it what would it look like oh yeah it was kind of short now there's big tall trees and i said do you have hawks nesting in those trees now and roosting And, and they're like sure so um you know understanding the quality of habitat is is very important and if you're not comfortable doing it reach out to one of those resource professionals locally or somewhere else and and just get an assessment because just because it's grass doesn't mean it's nesting Mm-hmm. So um, assuming you, you have some feedback on what good nesting habitat is and, and they say, hey, I'm missing brood cover, then, you know, add brood cover. And between, if I think, reproductive cover, so nesting and brood, I mean, they can serve kind of both purposes if it's the right mix. Um, you, you have to have, that's the predominant amount of uh I guess habitat component you need most, right? That's that's where all your reproduction comes from. Well, right. I-,
0: I can remember for decades we had um, a, the importance of nesting cover brochure, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a there was a map of the pheasant range in ninety-eight percent of the entire country. The number one limiting factor from a habitat perspective was a lack of nesting cover. So And we've evolved to, you're calling it now, reproductive cover. So it's the combination of nesting and brood. But so if you're a landowner listening to this, the likelihood that the missing piece to your recipe is the most likely missing piece is nesting, brood cover slash reproductive cover, correct? Oh, absolutely. No question. All right, so so keep, keep walking us through that life cycle and how to assess some, some of the other habitat pieces.
1: So let's say you have reproduction occurring in that in that reproductive
0: yep. cover. Now, now you wanna
1: make sure they make it through the winter, right, because mm-hmm. if you have all dead birds at the end of the reproductive season, um, there's no one left to reproduce more birds. So that's where the food component and then good quality cover, especially the further north you go, uh, becomes more and more critical. Uh, but it is that balance uh, between both reproductive
0: and then survival slash winter In the winter survival, to reiterate, you talked about that earlier, and that's that's where it comes to vertical structure, right? Like, we think about cattail habitat provides vertical thermal structure in the winter. Well, it's, it's hard to plant cattails, right? Huh. <laughs> but but a mix like blizzard Buster. Right. Where it has sorghum and different vertically um, strong. So when when it snow comes, it doesn't all just fold over on itself. Right. That's that's what you're looking for.
1: Yeah, exactly. So if we're talking pheasants, I mean, blizzard buster is a great example. It has both the grain sorghums, which are short, seed heavy uh, varieties. And it's got the really tall forage sorghums, which really provide that robust nature. Uh, and if you plant it in a large section, it's going to be providing both that cover from a thermal standpoint and a, um, you know, predator avoidance standpoint, which can be really important. Uh, if you think about the alternative, it's those pheasants out there on that hillside scratching to get to the corn that's below the snow makes it really easy for some of those predators to get to them. But if it, that food and cover is all there together, uh, that can really benefit those those birds and especially tough winter blizzards.
0: Right. So knowing that really there's kind of multiple elements that you're assessing, uh, nesting cover, brood cover, winter cover, and then food. Um, We do have a variety of species, or I'm sorry, a variety of mixes that it's kind of a starting point for different species. You, you teased about the ultimate quail mix, but we do have, I, I, I need to find it here, but I believe it's quail cuisine, right?
1: Uh, yeah, in some areas there's a quail cuisine out there, um, which is um, largely, you know, high yielding annuals, so a lot of seed production in there, including ragweed, which uh, not allowed in some states, which again is part of those state Mm -hmm. regulations, but you're really trying to um, mimic things that have been done in like Missouri great states there where they're really just disturbing the soil, getting that ragweed seed to pop and the quail just absolutely love that kind of stuff. So we're trying to mimic that with quail cuisine. But it could also be cubby rice, right? So that's a sorghum, all grain sorghums, a couple different varieties in there. It's got the creams and the whites. So deer will kind of like it, but they're not going to wipe it out. Um, Blizzard buster, again, you know, in terms of the the pheasants is, is kind of the the premier one. But if you're in the Great Plains, you might think, oh, winter shield from a food source. You know, we're adding millets into there. We have both quail and pheasants. So, um, you know, we've, we've tried to design in our signature series line mixes that can meet a lot of different uh, situations out there on the landscape. And just kind of got to narrow it down to what your wildlife focus is, where you're at in the country, and uh, we can get you there pretty well with food plots. It's, it's more complex with native grasses, but food plots, we have a pretty well-defined method out there.
0: So I'll, I'll reiterate a little bit of that to folks. So go to pfhabitatstore.org under the food plot seed section, um, you know, Aaron talked about the Covey Rise mix, uh, 25 pound bag, um, as a good starting point for quail. And in the northern states for, of the pheasant range, uh, Blizzard Buster, we've we've talked about it a number of times. I believe it's the number one selling mix that we have. Yeah,
1: is that right, Aaron? Uh, believe it or not, Dove Candy surpasses Oh, is it really? Okay. You know, Blizzard Buster, yeah.
0: So I'll come back to Dove Candy then. Um, uh, but Blizzard Buster is way up there. And it's it is that winter cover food plot combo for the northern states. And then in the Great Plains, the equivalent would be uh, Winter Shield. Uh tell me about Dove Candy. I didn't realize that that was our number one selling seed mix. What uh, um obviously it's uh folks want doves Uh, so what what makes that one special
1: well doves north to south across the country right so they're everywhere and people like to chase them and um certainly from a um, aesthetic value a field of sunflowers is is hard to beat from a food plot thing and pheasants use them, quail we use them too um but yeah it's it's a variety of sunflowers kind of a sportsman's blend. So they're, they're different maturing, different sizes. Uh, so we extend that bloom period a little bit. Um, and then of course, there's lots of techniques out there for managing for dove fields if you want to go that route. But yeah, great food plot product out there. Um, doves and I mentioned earlier too like, native grass fields those first years or after a burn can be pretty fantastic for doves as well.
0: All right. Now, I know the number one species across the country that people want on their property. Great big bucks. Tell us a little bit about uh, what mixes you plant for deer.
1: And that's all about timing. So deer are really easy to to work with. If you think about, they switch food sources throughout the fall and, and even the spring. So like a clover mix, a clover candy, we call it uh, great for spring, good for the fall. But before they hit that clover candy, they're probably working on acorns. Um, and then they, when they, The clovers are all a legume, so beans are in that same window there, and then they're going to move on to um, your grains, uh, your wheats, oats, um, corn if it's available out there, but then they're going to switch to the brassicas, which a lot of those deer hunters really love. So it's all about when do I want to be sitting in my stand? because that's, that's the food plot product you're gonna to wanna to plant if that's your goal. Um, the same could be true about pheasants and, and if you're pulling those birds, if you're looking for those late seasons, you're, you're gonna to wanna to have a food plot out there uh, because that's gonna really concentrate those birds.
0: Mm-hmm. So that that does go to the point of a person that is, their goal is hunting birds, not necessarily creating more birds, but their goal is, is a place to chase them in the fall. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah, and so, and, and then things like, okay, so I'm in pheasant range, but I, I really wanna hunt my food plots. Well, blizzard buster gets eight to 10 feet tall with that porch sorghum, so I I can't see my dog in there. That's no fun, mm-hmm. so what should I do? And then then I might push them towards covey rise, which is in a three to five foot range, which is great hunting cover. Or if they're far north, it might be something like early long tail milo, which is a little shorter, and especially if you've got pointing breeds, great to watch your dog work
0: in front of you on that. Uh, somebody wants to um, uh, hunt gobblers. They want more turkeys on the property. Do we have a mix for them? Uh, yeah, I mean, they're they're similar to deer in terms of their
1: browsing um, wildlife. So first I should say nesting cover is still important. They're ground nesting birds. So native prairie type habitat, still important for their life cycle. Uh, but if it comes to hunting turkeys in the spring or in the fall, you know, that clover candy type of product, clover, is is pretty good. They do a lot of bugging, especially with poults as well, um, in that, that legume field or clover. And we like to make sure that it's not just a single clover species. So some people will say, yeah, I'll plant ladino clover, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. Yeah, um, but if you plant a mix, you're going to have a longer um, kind of season for that, both in terms of blooming and you're attracting more insects, which obviously
0: is important for poults as well as for chicks i'm assuming that uh that also works just as well for rough grouse so if somebody wants to plant uh you know their logging trails or their walking trails in the woods clover candy is a uh, is the ticket isn't it
1: yeah bob i think your cooper is showing there a little
0: bit <laughs> <laughs> no doubt uh we even we even have duck mixes
1: we do. And um, so we call it duck candy, right? We're super original here as biologists. We got <laughs> clover candy, we got duck candy, uh-huh. um, duck candy. It, it makes kids. Yeah. <laughs> so um, absolutely. So it honestly was initially a product we called chick magnet. So it was designed to establish quickly. It had some millets in there. So 45 days and you got covered like these are for the procrastinators that forgot to do something in the spring. Mm-hmm so we've got that mix in and people said hey can we flood that for ducks and you know we thought about it we're like well you could we could change some species a little bit and still accomplish what we want with chick magnet and then also have that you know jet millet component essentially that's really good for the flooding and uh, it it's actually taken off the loop really well we've we've only had it for a couple of years now and, and people love it
0: huh. absolutely
1: love the duck candies
0: and so I know we have a lot of state agency partners and soil co- water conservation districts and um, and a lot of them, not only are listeners of the podcast, but they're some of our, our bigger customers uh, on the seed side of things, too. Whether that's planting food plots on wildlife areas or, or establishing some of the native seed, um, if some agency partners are listening that maybe don't currently have a relationship on the seed side of things. How, you know maybe give a overview of how you work with uh some other agency partners and what they what they should do to reach out to you
1: so uh it's as varied as as every other you know customer cooperator kind of base too so when we're working with districts a lot of the times they're promoting our program to their local cooperators. So we've we've got a program for that. We're working with state agencies, and they might be doing food plots on their state areas, or they might be doing nesting cover. Um, In both cases, you know, we've got the ability to completely customize uh, what they want. Um, And we, we even do contracts with states. So we have a contract with the state of Ohio, for example, where we can provide them different
0: products at special State contract rates too, so because mm-hmm. ultimately, as as we've said a number of times throughout the podcast, our goal here is not to make a profit. Our goal is to make habitat. So if we can work with uh, anybody, whether that's private landowners, state agencies, businesses, uh, we we work with corporations that want to plant a pollinator plot in their their back of their business for for where they they're their employees have the barbecue and the picnic table for lunch. We work with schools to uh, set them up with pollinator mixes for schoolyard pollinator habitat plantings. I mean, this um, really comes back to our mission as a nonprofit, 501c3. Our goal here is not to turn a dollar. Our goal here is to fulfill our mission which is habitat. And there's all sorts of ways where you work with folks at the very beginning with the seed.
1: Uh, Yeah, you, you nailed it there. And and what I would say is even on the beyond the habitat goal, like if a customer is purchasing seed from us, what they can really be feel good about, I guess, is that all the proceeds from our seed sales, like a lot of other things go right back into our mission, you know, more, habitat on the ground or birds in the air more youth in our field so it's a win-win across the board for the organization getting great habitat out there the landowners getting that um and any dollars we do make go right back into the mission to do more habitat
0: so if folks want to reach out to you directly questions um you know sourcing different mixes how do they reach you Aaron?
1: So, um, obviously, you've mentioned the website a couple times, pfhabitatstore.com. That's a great first step. Uh, you can do seed at pheasantsforever.org. Uh, that'll go right to me uh, and is easier than spelling my name online. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that, that's an easy one. Uh, from a phone number standpoint, you can call the quail. Pheasants Forever numbers, either one. Um, and we're option two, or option, I'm sorry, option three. It's not on the menu yet, but if you push three, you'll come right to me. Uh, otherwise, the direct line is 651-395-7620.
0: Okay. So, you know, folks, I I've mentioned this before. I know I mentioned this in the last podcast. Um, as a one of the few in our organization that doesn't have a biology degree, it makes me incredibly proud to work with, you know, oh, damn near 270 biologists on a daily basis, including Aaron Keel, our seed biologist. You know, here again, I, I can't stress enough that the point of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever having a seed program is the foundation of habitat begins with the seed. And the fact that we have a not only a great guy in the role in Aaron, but we have a person with biology degree, biology master's degree. He's a hunter. Uh, he, he, he he care. He's a long lifelong conservationist. Spent time in, in Minnesota, Illinois, Iowa. He's passionate about quail, pheasants. Understands how predation and birds and habitat all interrelate and ultimately he can help design the best seed mixes to create that habitat from coast to coast so it's it's a really you know i spent a lot of time in the beginning talking with aaron about his background because i i i think it's incredibly impressive the organization putting people like aaron in these positions and then they they can influence our mission from every single seed that gets planted. So uh, hopefully you're a landowner that's thinking about habitat this winter. Hopefully you're you're uh, not buried under snow. But if you are, think about how the pheasants and the quail are doing. And then think about habitat. Go to pfhabitatstore.com. And if you have questions, you can reach out to Aaron directly at seed at PheasantsForever.com. I get that email right, Aaron? Uh, PheasantsForever.org. But no, yes. I'm sorry, PheasantsForever.org. Yep. I should know that. Thanks for spending uh, spending some time with me talking about uh, our seed program, right?
1: Bob, absolutely. It was a joy to talk with you today. I uh, really appreciate all you do as well. Thanks a lot. All
0: right. All right, folks. Uh, thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of On the Wing podcast. It may be the dead of winter, but it is absolutely the time to be thinking about habitat. Drive around right now, especially if you live where there's snow. Drive around your favorite places to hunt. And uh, take a look at the landscape. There's a lot of places that just look like the surface of the moon right now. That means... We need to plant habitat and we need in particular more vertical structure out there, winter cover, blizzard buster, winter shield, sorghum mixes. We need a place for those birds to have their bedroom next to the grocery store and uh, for them to, to weather the storms of winter. So they come into the nesting season in strong physical condition, to uh, lay as big a clutches as possible and and protect those nests. So the success that we all have in the fall really starts in January. So start thinking about habitat, pfhabitatstore.org. All right, folks, thanks for listening to this episode. I'm Bob St. Pierre saying always follow the dog. Something good is going to rise. Thanks for listening.